Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey, feeling very blessed and honored, especially as a person brought up in the Jewish faith to welcome Father Nathan Castle, a Catholic priest who is a lecturer, a workshop facilitator, and a retreat director to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Father Nathan, who's here with his precious dog, Toto, will be speaking to us from Tucson, Arizona. Father Nathan graduated from Trinity University in San Antonio and entered the Dominican order in 1979 He received his Master's of Arts and Master of Divinity degrees from the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He has served in campus ministries in California and Arizona for 27 years, and he has chaired the Executive Board of the Catholic Campus Ministry Association, and he is also the author of three books. I'm looking forward to chatting with Father Nathan about his fascinating second book titled Afterlife Interrupted, Helping Stuck Souls Cross Over, and his also fascinating third book titled Afterlife Interrupted Book Two, Helping Souls Cross Over. These two books describe the remarkable ways Father Nathan and his prayer partners help stuck souls who are people who died suddenly and traumatically to complete their passage to the other side of the veil. This will surely be an incredibly interesting and very enlightening interview. So let's begin. Hi, Father Nathan. Great to be with you. What a pleasure. Oh, what a pleasure to welcome you to Grief and Rebirth podcast. So let's begin with this question because you have such a fascinating story to share with everyone. What causes a soul to become stuck and is getting stuck before crossing over a common occurrence? And why did you remove the word stuck from the title of your second book, titled Afterlife Interrupted Book Two, Helping Souls Cross Over? I think we can get stuck here or hereafter by the way that we imagine circumstances in our lives. We kind of can, with our own thoughts, paint ourselves into a corner uh, and think that I've tried everything and nothing's working. Uh, oftentimes people will go to a counselor or to a confidant and complain about something that's going wrong in their life that they can't seem to get past. And then when help is offered, they resist it or won't have it. Uh, does, does anybody resemble that remark? I mean, it's a pretty common thing. <laughs> it is a very um, common thing. And they love, people often say your thoughts create your reality. They absolutely do. And for some people that, uh, let me say, first of all, you experience the sudden death of your husband. So you can relate to your audience who has lost loved ones, especially suddenly. Most people don't get stuck. 
Uh, don't think because you heard, you know, a podcast and some priest talked about stuck souls that that's really, really common. I don't think it is. Uh, but when it happens, it's usually because people are, one, one thing is that they're sometimes just overwhelmed. Everything happened all at once and everything, they're out of body. And sometimes um, they just need a chance to chill. That's why I think a lot of traditions have something that says rest in peace at a funeral. Because sometimes they just need afterlife rest just to regroup. But the point of resting is rising, re-energized. That's why we go to sleep. <laughs> we rest so that we can be re-energized. So that happens a lot. But then sometimes people are more stuck because they create some sort of exaggerated story in their mind. Uh, and they get heartbroken over it. Um, I can give some examples if you like, but. Sure. Please do. And I have a question also about this that's popping up for me now, which is um, I was told when my husband crossed over that he had done this many times and he was an older soul. Okay. Do you think some of these stuck souls may be younger souls who haven't had the experience of crossing over that much? So they don't really know to go to the light. I'm not sure. And. Uh, because you and I move in this world, we meet a lot of people with a lot of different religious and philosophical trainings. And then lots of people have cosmologies and understandings of the world that are quite different from our own. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not one that necessarily, I haven't been taught about past lives and that's not a Catholic thing. I know. Uh, however, I'm open to the possibility because I believe God and the things of God, including the whole universe, are a mystery. And we can understand things only partly. So um, I, I I listen to that and I wonder about it. And I know plenty of Catholic people who believe that they've had past lives. But as a as the practicing Catholic priest that I am, that's not my cosmology. Not, you're right, right. Why did you remove the word? And please give us some examples. But why did you remove the word stuck from the second book? And you've got stuck on the first book because they, they are all stuck, right? No, that's why I changed it. Okay. Uh, it's just that um, dying traumatically, suddenly and violently, and, and in your husband's case, it, it wasn't malicious, it was accidental. Right. But, but sometimes on top of all that, somebody wanted you dead and killed you. And it, there, it, it can be more and more complicated depending upon what a person's story is. Uh, and sometimes people's whole identity, for example, is bound up in raising small children, and then they die suddenly. And they feel their identity is ripped away and they need to find a next reason for living even after they've died. But they're not necessarily ready to because they're still angry about having their previous reason for living ripped away without their permission. Mm. And so wow. sometimes they need to they need to just calm down at some point and recognize that you can keep thinking that as long as you'd like, but it's not helping. I mean, you're right. It's like you're no longer in your body. So what what was the difference between stuck in the first book and stuck in the and 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 not in the second? One thing that I've seen is that a lot of the people that my prayer partners and I have helped, they uh, they land, if you will, in in their afterlife in something that is healing, and it's it has something of the affect of a clinic. Um, some for people that have been through 12 step and addiction stuff, sometimes like uh, a behavioral health continuum. Um, 
And then th there comes a point where they've received all the help that that level, that that place in the afterlife can give them. And it's time to graduate. And my prayer partners and I are like the discharge staff at such a place. The, the work that has that they've needed to do has been promoted by others. And our job is just to help them get out the door with, a, with knowing where they're going, kind of the way that you went through a bunch of surgeries and stuff. People will ask you on the day of your, your uh, dismissal from a hospital, do you know, do you understand your meds? Do you know when your next appointment is? You know about the physical therapy? Is somebody coming to pick you up? Uh, will you be well fed? We have a, a job analogous to that, just at the end of a healing process where they're ready to go on to a next level. It's really it's wonderful. It's really cool what you're doing. I mean, it's just wonderful. And how what a blessing that you uh, are getting these messages. We'll talk more about it, about the dreams and, and what happens. Yeah. But so talk. So let's lead into that. What inspired you? What happened to help you start to help these souls cross over? And what does the church say about this unusual and special work you're doing? Well, um, it, I really answered that in two parts. I'm, I'm almost 66. I'll be 66 next month in March. And I'm, I'm Catholic from birth and in a very Catholic home that not only told me rules and regulations about a faith tradition and so on, but they taught me about the spirit. And they taught me that I had a family on earth and a family in heaven. I had, had a purpose. And part of the way Catholics understand the afterlife is the idea of purgatory, that not everybody springs from earth to heaven in an instant, that there's some sort of gradient or some sort of a, even, even the word purge means to cleanse, that there might be something that involves cleansing. Uh, oh, that's very cool. I never thought of it that way. That's a very good concept. Yeah. You, you, you know, have you ever purged your closet or sure, your garage or something like that? And you're happy afterwards because now it's cleaner. <laughs> so it's not a punishment. It's just a place where you um, are getting um, cleansed and purified in a way. And sometimes that uh, uh, purging, getting rid of things helps you more appreciate what's important. You didn't need 10 coats. You, you picked out the couple that you're really going to use and eight, right. eight of them go to the poor. <laughs> anyway, I was, I was taught as a child to pray for the souls in purgatory and that if you could help them move, especially if you help them move from purgatory to heaven, which was kind of imagined like an international border, you know, from going into Mexico to the U.S. or something like that. Uh, and I was taught as a little kid by uh, both of my aunts were Dominican first grade teachers. They were Catholic nuns. And I had my mom and my dad and I was just absorbed in this this community. I was taught if yours was the prayer that got somebody over the border into heaven, you'd have a friend for all eternity. Oh, wow. Uh, so as a little kid, I'd fall asleep praying that way. And I thought they were like at the bank. When you go to the bank, you have to wait in a line with those zigzaggedy ropes, you know. And I thought I could help them cut. I could help them cut in line. <laughs> <laughs> and you are. <laughs> and that's what you're ending up doing. And I knew that only the Catholics prayed that way. So I, I didn't know very many Jews growing up in Southeast Texas, but I knew lots of Baptists who wouldn't have believed in purgatory. They were Christian, but they didn't believe in purgatory. So I would look at the newspaper and see what church they were, their funeral was going to be at. And I would pray for the ones that weren't Catholic. <clears throat> so why am I not surprised? What a beautiful heart you have and, and all that. So what does the church say about what you're doing? Well, 
Um, the church is 1.4 billion people and they don't all know me or, <laughs> or me. <laughs> um, but um, the most important thing is I'm a, I, I made a vow of obedience within my religious order uh, in the Dominicans uh, where some there's something like 5,500 Dominican men in the world. And we're in the Western United States. I live in Arizona. We're organized into a group of about 140 and we elect a leader. And uh, the two leaders that, that have been uh, elected in the time that my books have been out have both endorsed them and written at the front, uh, Nathan can be trusted. And uh, th that doesn't mean that I'm across the board that every Catholic would agree but the, the, the most important ones uh, in my most life. Most important people in your life support you, which is, which is. And they, and they know me. Uh, they know you. There, there have been a couple of times when I've been disinvited to be at a Catholic church when I was brought in to do a workshop and they learned about this part of my life, but that's okay. I only want to go where I'm welcome anyway. And I'm welcome enough places that you don't, don't need to fuss about that kind of thing. That's absolutely true. So you talk about working with a prayer partner. Yeah. And together with a prayer partner, you've been able to help over 400 stuck souls complete their passage to the other side. So I got all kinds of questions about this. How do you experience the stuck souls who need your help? How do you and your prayer partner communicate with them? What sort of process do you use to help them? And are they all recently deceased? Okay. That's a lot of questions in one, yeah. but I'll try to go, Want me to go one at a time. So, yeah. okay. So. I mean, your books are fascinating. I, I really enjoyed reading them. So um, how do you experience these stuck souls who need your help? They come in the night in a dream. Um, and like most people, not everybody remembers their dreams, but I always have, or at least, you know, I remember the ones I remember. There's probably others that I forget, but I do remember dreams most mornings. Like if you were with me over coffee, I could tell you some dream. And most of the time they're about my own psychobabble. You know, they're just whatever my psyche is doing, processing things and such. But um, about 25 years ago, I had a dream and I knew I, I was dreaming about ending a round of golf. I'd play golf. I, I, I forgot. I wouldn't have put this, uh, this interview at this hour because it's usually when I'm playing golf with my friend. But uh, <laughs> this week. Uh, well, thank with, you for making an exception in our case. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do it. uh, it's a gorgeous day here for golf, too. I'll bet. Um, well, I was finishing a round. We went, we, we went into the bar. And we're having a drink and it turned out there was a silent auction going on for a charity. Well, I've run charities my whole life and fundraising around them. And so silent auctions, that's no big deal. That's just another part of my psyche. But I saw a piece of framed art along a, a wall and pointed out to my partner, look over there, look at that horrid piece of art on the wall. Someone should be ashamed for donating that to a charity who would give something that or, but it was so horrid that I wanted to get a closer look at it the way that we do when there's a tragedy you know, on the freeway. I, you've been through the death of your husband on a freeway, but do you still slow down when you see a crash on the freeway and want to get a closer look? No. Uh, well, maybe you don't because of that. But most of your <laughs> listeners probably do. I mean, uh, a lot of people, I also watch that and I go, you know what? I've been there and I've done that and like bless them. And I, I know, and you know. Well, good for you, but m many of us still stop and, and gape, uh, uh, gawk at such a looky-loo. And I started that. I wanted to see more of it because it was so awful. And then it moved toward me. And the inside the picture frame, we didn't have televisions on the wall 25 years ago. But it 
it moved toward me and inside the frame a movie began to play. And it was a man burning to death on the radiator of, of an engine of a car from the late 50s, early 60s, the kind with fins and lots of chrome. He, he wasn't in a crash. Something else happened to make him catch fire. And he was screaming in anger at someone outside the picture frame as he died. And it was so different. I woke up from it right away and knew the first part, the golf game was mine, but not the screaming guy. And I, I sat up and I said, whoever you are, my name is Nathan. I just saw what you wanted me to see, I think. And I, I said in prayer, don't leave yet. I, I'm going to try to write this down because I know it's important. And then that the, I was on a retreat with about 20 other people. And one of them had spiritual gifts that I thought might be handy. And she, she and I had a practice of praying together already. I just said to her, would you mind if we get a break? Could we pray together about whatever happened? And we, um, she was able, I don't use the word uh, channeling because in the Catholic church, it's just radioactive. It upsets people. Uh, and so I just say it's a gift of prophecy, which belongs both to Judaism and to uh, yes. Christianity, uh, that it's a, the prophet allows God to speak through them. And uh, she did that. And she said, whoever this guy is, he really wants to talk to you. Would you, would it be okay? And I said, well, we've, we pray protective prayer first. We pray to Michael the Archangel in the Catholic Christian tradition, Mary the Mother of Jesus, and a number of other different saints, and make sure that we're we're safe from any influence that would be negative. Uh, I think that's important. I don't pick up hitchhikers on Earth or on the next plane. Not I, I agree. I mean, when I read that, I thought that was wonderful that you do that. You, you, not everybody is safe company. That's right. Uh, at least not at present. And. So um, we did that and out came a story of this man. And it's in so many podcasts. Just to, if you go to my YouTube channel, so many podcasters ask, how did this get started? And that story has been told again and again. So but, many you know, yeah, but anyway, he spoke up and, and we learned about what he was upset about and we helped him. And uh, you helped him to cross over. We did. In his specific case, he had died at 20 years old. He kept an eye on his wife for the next 40 years. Uh, and she was dying of cancer in her early 60s. And his issue was, uh, how did he put it? Um, I want to greet her when she crosses, but I can't the way I am. Uh, he was from Georgia, from rural Georgia. So we figured, okay, well, we'll, we'll do what we can and we'll figure out how to help you get what you want. And, and we were able you know, with this. Holy I remember Spirit. reading that story in, in, in your book and yeah. it was a great introduction to what you started to do. So, um, so I think you've answered the sort of process you use to help them. And are they all recently deceased? They're no, not, are uh, they? Once in a great while, we'll get somebody who's been gone like a really long time, more than a century. Um, but that doesn't happen very often at all. They're more um, people, I'm, as I said, I'm almost 66. Most of them have died during my lifetime. A few, a little bit more during the 20th century, but before I was born, but uh, more mostly in, in recent decades, at least. And then sometimes you can tell by the way they tell a story, they pulled out, you know, when the car flipped over, they pulled out their cell phone and called 911. Well, you know, that's going to tip you off a little bit. That's a more recent uh, and then sometimes the way that movies orient us towards time and space with fashions and music and cars, sometimes they'll do that. They'll let me know that this was in the 50s 
or the 40s or something like that with with those kind of cues. But mostly they're they're well relatively recent. So some of these souls have really been in a holding pattern for a long time till they find you. And I thought at first that none of them pay attention to time. But I one of the things I've learned is that we try to simplify things by creating categories in our mind and our imagination and that dying and, and surviving it must be like this. Well, except that there's a there's billions of people on the earth right now and we don't all do the same things the same way. <laughs> For sure. And there's a lot of ways to do just about anything. And so people that die and come to me, I just, uh, I listen for how we can help. And we're at the, we're at the end of a healing continuum. We're not getting people as though they just were in the crash or the fire or the flood. They've already been helped by others. And we're at the tail end where we help them move from the healing place they've been to a next set of opportunities you're like, like a facilitator like, you're a facilitator and it's graduation day they're they're yeah. oftentimes they're uh, the way that a, a college graduate or high school graduate might look ahead to all the possibilities out in front of them what are you going to do the rest of your life it has that affect to it the person has moved through the healing that they needed after their abrupt death and now they're they have the energy and the enthusiasm to look forward to go i think i'd like to do that right and they pick you as the person that they're going to work with some of them have, uh, we've asked about why me. And one guy said, your light was on. I thought that was kind of sweet. I love uh, that. Uh, but others have said, uh, one Catholic lady said, well, they gave me a catalog. I used to shop from the JCPenney in this year's catalog. And they gave me a catalog and said, here, just sit there and page through this. And she came upon me and my prayer parts. And she said, well, I was a Catholic. I think I'd like that one. Well, it's uh, sort of like going to my podcast the, my with all the healers and the mediums and the the people who can help you on my podcast. If you're interested in healing, go choose one. It's the same kind of a thing. Some One person told me it was like being at a travel agent or in the lobby of a hotel when you're checking in and there's a shelf full of all the the local things that you could do and see that they, they were shown a lot of possibilities and that I and my prayer partners were one of those. Your light came on. That's great. So here's another question. With all that's happened to all of these people who you helped to cross over, is there anything such as judgment on the other side, even in the case of suicide? Not the way that people think about being punished as a consequence of being judged. But when you think of what happens in a courtroom, all we're really trying to do is arrive at the truth of what happened. That's what courtrooms are about. What really happened? And people have different ways of, you know, sometimes they're, they're trying to be deceitful, you know, uh, or they're trying to get away with something. And other times there's just different points of view. The judgment that I've seen is really about arriving at truth and not shaming anybody. But um, if a person is believing something about themselves, their world or others that isn't true, it will hold them back. It's important to see things truly. Truly. And, and they have to be, and they're, and I do believe that they're they have to become responsible for the ways they hurt other people and all, and, and all that kind of thing. Even I, know that you, I know that a lot of your, uh, your viewers and listeners have been, are in grief and sometimes grief is hard enough. Losing a loved one is hard any way you look at it, but sometimes people make it harder by believing things that aren't true. You know, if only I had done this, that, or the other, he or she would still be alive. Uh, or, 
sometimes people will feel guilty about things that um, the rest of us would say, sweetheart, there's, that's just normal. You know, um, I wasn't there at the moment he died. You know, people will do this bedside vigil and they go for a cup of coffee and they die and they, they're upset with themselves that they weren't there at the moment. There are all kinds of ways that people can make grief harder than it needs to be. And I, if, if they come to me, I'll say, you know, you're entitled to grieve any way you please, but I think you have dirt in the wound. Yeah, that's great. Now, what about suicide? When a person takes their life by suicide, is there judgment about that when they cross over? They're surprised that there isn't. Sometimes they hide or because they anticipate that they're going to be punished. And so sometimes they try to isolate in the afterlife as best they're able. But what I've seen is it's not really tolerated. We are not islands and, or we belong to each other always. And you're at least, and I call them guardian angels. Sometimes people call them guard, guiding spirits or whatever. I just say guardian angel. They, their guardian will stay with them even if they suicided and give them all the space and privacy they can, but they won't allow isolation because it's detrimental. Okay. Uh, they'll, they'll, you can create some sort of room like the one you're in in the afterlife, but your guardian will be in the corner of it just quietly sitting there watching. Watching you and eventually when you're ready, it's time to move on. And they try, how, and they try to get on. you to listen to them. They try to talk you, you know, into some little bit of engagement. And then some of the folks that have suicide, that suicide, many of them wanted just for pain to stop. They weren't trying to commit a murder on themselves or hurt their loved ones or anything. Sometimes they were just in such pain that they hoped that this would make the pain stop. And they learn at least that, well, it, it might've changed a lot of things, but it didn't end my life completely. And then, then they're kind of coached. Well, let's pick up where you left off, live in the present moment. Okay, now you see that you did in fact survive your death, but let's work on how we can get you up and around. You know, there's a whole bunch of there's a team of people that help folks. Yeah, so they're healing them on they're helping them to heal on the other side. Yes. Yeah. So this is a loaded question for you, Father Nathan. Does anyone ever truly die alone, including those who have seemingly died alone due to COVID? No. No. So this is important for people to hear because I hear all the time that people are like, oh, those poor people died alone. And, and I have been told in my world that's not true. So why don't you um, tell people about that? Well, one, uh, there's a whole category of uh, uh, near-death visitation. You familiar with that phenomenon? Where mm -hmm. A lot of times in hospices where the death of someone is, it's quite clear that it's approaching. My grandmother had that where you're that you might be there physically in this body uh, trying to console your dying loved one. And they're talking to their mother who right. died 40 years ago, you know, or over they, they're, they're looking past you while you're looking at them because they're looking at somebody in the upper corner of the room. That, that happens a lot uh, that, that others come to visit. And sometimes they even call their name out loud that if they're able to verbalize. So all these people who feel that their loved ones died alone because of COVID, they did not die alone. They were surrounded by their loved ones from the other side. Yes, it can still be a grief on your part that you didn't, because of COVID, you couldn't go into the nursing home room and so on. I understand that. And that should be respected. But if a person was counseling with me, I'd say, I'm sorry that happened. None of us would wish that. We it would have been nice had you been able to hold her hand. 
but let's deal with what's today. Let's deal with what's now. And the truth is nobody dies alone. Then whether they want to receive that or not, it's up to them. But Right. But it's such a comfort for those who are open to receiving that. Yeah. You have such wonderful stories of stuck souls you helped to cross over to the other side. So I've chosen a few for you to share with all of us. So let's begin with your story about a young girl named Ronnie who was swept out to sea by a tsunami and got stuck because she thought her parents were angry with her. She's a deer. Um, uh, she showed us uh, in the dream. I was bo- I was at a beach uh, and I knew I was in Sri Lanka, the little island nation that's just south of India. I knew I was in Sri Lanka and I was on a beach and I knew I was a young girl. Uh, the way she told a story put me inside of her. And they don't all do that because there are different ways to tell a story. But she she bobbed around when this wave swept her. She she drowned uh, and arrived. She had she was twelve years old. She was on what you know how the she was spoke British English the way Indian speak people do, and they they don't say vacation. They say holiday. They were on holiday, and it was a Sunday morning, and her parents were sleeping in, and the the beach looked so beautiful. She was forbidden to go to the beach without them, but she broke their rules and went down to the beach because she just couldn't stand it. And she said, I I couldn't have been more unlucky. I I arrived at the beach just in time to be swept out to sea. So she was the only child of Asian parents. And she said, you know, we Asians have a great deal of respect for our parents and I died being disobedient to them. And so she was very stuck about uh, depriving her parents of their only child and any grandchildren they might have had. And she just loaded herself up with guilt about being disobedient. And we had to just kind of talk her down off the ledge, you know. How did you talk her down off the ledge? One of the things I said was, okay, dear, uh, uh, you, you died being disobedient to your parents. Now tell me, if I had known you, uh, I want you to tell me uh, stories of how disgraceful and disobedient you were that would have made me loathe you, you know? And she said, oh, no, 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 I wasn't, I, 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 it wasn't like that. I was mostly really kind and obedient to them. It's just that I said, see, that's the point. <laughs> you, you died at the worst possible moment and you know that, but what you're saying about yourself is way exaggerated. Um, you, you were mostly a good, obedient child. It's just that you were disobedient at a critical moment. Can you forgive yourself that that brief lapse and get on with it? And she was able to do that. That's she just wonderful. needed to change her mind. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And I actually saved for the end of our um, interview here, I saved one a quote from her that I lifted from the book that I thought was just wonderful. So now please tell us the story of Shelby, the retired country lawyer who was stuck due to shame. He brought a dream and in it, I was behind the wheel of we used to, when I, in the late 70s, some of the American-made cars were these enormous, heavy sedans, um, Lincolns and great big Cadillacs and stuff. And they, we used to call them land yachts, uh, that they were slow and clunky. And anyway, he, I was driving one of those. I was in a small town in Georgia. I was in the Central Business District, and I was turning left onto a side street and in the street became a staircase that I was driving down and there was water at the bottom of it. And I landed in water and the current pushed the car around to the left 
and the car began to sink and none of the con the steering wheel or nothing controlled anything. And I went underwater and woke up. Uh, well, it turned out that Shelby was, uh, had, had, had a 50 year marriage. His wife had died. He was, had been widowed for a short time. He used to get up and dress like he was a lawyer and he dressed in a suit every day of his life. And he would go to a cafe near the courthouse and sit with his cronies. But his daughter was trying to take the car keys away because she thought he was going into dementia and it wasn't safe, but he wouldn't allow it. And he accidentally, when he, he took a, a turn onto what he thought was a street, but it was a boat launch. Maybe some of your listeners have launched a boat. Uh, there's oftentimes a cement uh, ramp that goes down into the water and it has little ridges in it that look like a tiny staircase to give the tire some traction. Right. And that was the staircase in the dream. He went down the staircase uh, and drowned. Um, he was horrified because it was a small town and he knew the he knew the sheriff, he knew the coroner, he knew the person that had to cut him out of his seatbelt. He was very fastidious in his dress. He had a lot of grooming products and his appearance was very important to him. And he died in this muck of nastiness on the bottom of a river. And they and other people cut him out of his clothes and saw his naked, wrinkly body covered with grime. And he was horrified of it. And he um, he was stuck about being an old fool. Had he only listened to his daughter's advice, this would never have happened. And he even thought that people at his funeral might have had he, he created a story in his head about his funeral and said he was so respectable until the end. And then he died this old fool so that he had that tape playing in his head. And I wonder if any of your viewers have some ugly story they tell about themselves that they just think is their truth. And could you just stop it? Could you forgive yourself and let it go, please? Wouldn't you? So the rest of us would enjoy you so much more if we didn't. Right. Absolutely. So how did you talk him into what did you do to help him to motivate him to cross over? Well, I haven't used this word in this interview, but I often do the, the word vetted. Nobody comes to me unready to pass. I've learned that even if they seem a little bit reluctant, they wouldn't be on my line had their guardian and their their health team uh, thought they were ready, even if there's a barely ready. Well, anyway, I knew he was ready because he wouldn't be in the line otherwise. And I just said to him, Shelby, you know, you're, you're, uh, you were a lawyer. You're, you are proposing some facts that are not in evidence. You're not allowed to do that in a courtroom. You just can't say publicly in a courtroom, something that you can't back up. And I said, you're saying some things about you that can't be verified. And you're, 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 I want you to tell me the truth. And anyway, I played with him in a courtroom kind of way. And uh, eventually he was able to just say, I get it. I'm, I'm, I've stayed in this loop too long. I need to uh, go on. And uh, all he needed to do was change his thinking. Oh, isn't that magical for all of us? All you have to do so many times is just change your thinking. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And then you also have two very touching stories in one of your books about stuck souls who took their lives by suicide. Yeah. You share the story of the stuck soul named Leaper Bob who fell, but now floats and tell us why he got stuck. Um, they, they're, I, they're at the end of my second of the two books and they have a section of their own. It, uh, there's a woman who was in one of those uh, big bands like Glenn Miller 
Yep. Uh, she was she was the female singer and everybody else was male. That was uh, an amazing story, by the way. Wow. Yeah. She, her name is B, B-E-A. And she and Leaper Bob came in the same dream, which is very uncommon. They came uh, as like bookends of the same dream. And, I, uh, and it turned out that they were brought to me because they both suicided in the 30s or 40s. So long enough ago in time that it's safe to tell their story because anybody that grieves them, they've had decades and decades, you know, for most people, they're, they're an old photo. And so it was safe to, to, to share their stories. He uh, was affected by the great depression in 1929. He was in his career was in financial services and then the crash happened and nobody wanted financial services anymore. So overnight, his, his livelihood went the world away crashed. Mm -hmm. and he said, I didn't lose a fortune. It's just, I, nobody wanted financial advice anymore. And more, most people didn't have money to manage. And he said, it got harder and harder. My hours were reduced. I had three kids at home. It just got harder every day until he, his um, office was in, I think the second floor of a six story building. And some of the floors above him were a hotel and a, um, nightclub on the on the top floor that had a like a dancing under the stars kind of thing and it just occurred to him that and he started drinking and he and his wife were trying to save money to pay bills and then he would spend the money on drinking and he mm -hmm. said that of course made everything worse uh and then he started not going home because it was unpleasant and he one day he decided you know what there are hotel rooms above me i could register in a room I could go up and have a drink at the bar. You don't have to pay the hotel bill until the morning and I won't be here in the morning. And that's what he did. He decided that uh, he steeled himself with a couple of drinks. He wanted to talk to somebody before he left. So just talking to a friendly bartender gave him some opportunity to say something to somebody. And then he just decided I went down to where my room was. I walked from the door to the window and, uh, and took it left it to his death. And we helped him by imagining something that um, that falls but comes back up. And so uh, we didn't, he didn't want to use his real name, but my sister was helping with that one. And she said, well, corks go underwater. They bob, but then when a fish is on the hook, the cork goes underwater. That lets you know there's a fish, but it bobs back up. So he decided, well, I like that. I, I'm something that I'm, I know that I'm bobbing back up. It's true that I fell, but I'm coming back up. So he decided to call himself Bob. What a terrific analogy. That's great. Yeah. And then I have to really tell everyone that there's another story about suicide that is mind-blowing. And uh, it's worth uh, reading the book to find out about that. And then there is the story about Patrick Swayze's sister <laughs> titled Help Your Brother Johnny Castle. Aside from the fact that it's about Patrick Swayze's sister, I love the way you became a sleuth to figure out who was communicating with you. So please share Vicki Swayze's story with us, including when Patrick showed up for her on the other side. Yeah, and I've never heard from his family and I wouldn't want to disturb anything about them, but we did get, we always get permission to use these stories from the people in them. And Vicki gave us permission, she said, uh, that as far as she was concerned, it was fine to tell it publicly. I was working at Stanford University and I had, I was the chaplain of the Catholic community there and I had credentials to visit in Stanford Hospital. Um, my sister was living up in Oregon. Uh, she was raising alpacas, which are from Peru. 
Uh, she had a love for the people of Peru and used to do summer trips down there to help people in the Andes with dental care. Uh, wow. she, she grew to love St. Rose of Lima, Peru, who's also a member of the same order I am, Dominicans. And um, she had a, a love for St. Rose and used to talk to St. Rose when she said her prayers. And she was saying her prayers and she said, St. Rose won't leave me alone. She keeps saying, help your brother, Johnny Castellan. I keep telling her, I don't have a, a brother named Johnny. I have a brother. No, you're Nathan Castellan and the message help your brother, Johnny Castle. Yeah. And so, she, but she was, St. Rose was so insistent. She just said, she won't leave me alone. I have to help my brother, Johnny Castle. So I went on uh, online and Googled Johnny Castle and up came Patrick Swayze because that was the name of his character in his breakout role in Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing was a, a low budget film uh, with, and Patrick Swayze was a, a pretty unknown actor, but it went crazy and made him famous. And uh, there, that was his name. Johnny Castle was the name of the character. Patrick was in Stanford Hospital dying of pancreatic cancer. And I had the credentials to visit in Stanford Hospital. And so she said, well, I'm, 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 I'm not used to being your spiritual social secretary, but I've delivered the message. I've done what I can do. It's up to you now to figure out what's to do next. So I went to the head of chaplains, told him the story and said, is there any way that I could be allowed into his room? And he said, absolutely not. There had just been a scandal in Hollywood about some reporter getting into a celebrity's room and photographing charts and stuff, violating their medical privacy. And he said, no, you may not go anywhere near him. He would have to ask for you. So I, I dressed up as a priest, you know, the black collar and the white little tab. Right now I'm wearing my Dominican robes, which is another, you know, religious garb, but not everybody would recognize it. Uh, and I brought communion. Uh, you said you have a friend who's a Catholic Eucharistic minister. That's what we do. We bring communion in our pocket to the person that's there. And I sat in the lobby for like half an hour and I just kept waiting. I said, Holy Spirit, I'm sitting here. I'm making myself as available as I know how to be. Now somebody needs to walk up to me and say, oh, thank God you're here. Patrick's waiting for you. And it just wouldn't happen. It just didn't happen. So I, I said, okay, I can only, I have other things to do. I can't sit here all day. So I went into prayer not long after that with a partner and just said, Holy Spirit, God, we're trying to help Johnny Castle, but I don't know what to do. You're gonna have to tell me what, what's next. And out of that came uh, Patrick's sister, Vicky. And turns out she was um, she had she was in a garage band in Houston. I grew up on the east side of Houston in Port Arthur, and uh, she had gone. She was in a garage band playing local bars at the time that her brother went to New York and got you know made it big. But she got embroiled in the late night. Uh, booze and pills and stuff that can sometimes accompany that way of life. And she became an addict and she was never really free of it ever again. She fought, fought it, you know, and her family paid for some rehabs and things, but it, she never managed to stay clean and sober for more than a few months. And she died in her early forties. Wow. Uh, she told us that uh, she got really tired of being thought of this ne'er-do-well family member that they were kind of happy to see you, but they were always on their guard that it wouldn't be long before you'd be crying or wanting to borrow money or something because you were, you know, you know broken again. And so she said, when I did die, it frustrated me that I was this family member that was kind of loved, but was also a burden. And she said, I know my brother is dying, 
And I don't want to leave until I can go with him. I want to help him and show that I can really be a stand-up family member that can be counted on. That was important to her. And so she hung back uh, and didn't cross until her brother did. So she crossed with him? Yes. She waited for his death. And did he say anything or did you get anything from him? Sometimes people will let me know they're there, but they don't want to talk. They'll let me know kind of energetically. It, of the five senses, it feels most like touch. And it's also an idea in your head, like identifying. They can say, it's me, Patrick, but you can't see them really. And it's not exactly hearing, but it's knowing. And um, we asked her, uh, I think my prayer partner asked her, uh, is, is Patrick around? And she said, he's right here. But he's saying to me, this is her moment. I, I, I was in the lights and then before the microphone all the time. This is her moment. And then at the very end, when she was ready to cross, she said, he wants to say, he's not going to speak himself, but he, he wants it to be on the record that he's saying he's proud of me. Oh, wow. And then they left. What a blessing for her. What a blessing for her. Yeah. Um, wow. Father Nathan, what is your message about the importance of healing that you'd like to share with our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience? Healing. Well, think of how healing normally happens, like if you cut yourself or like you, you don't have to imagine it because you had huge wounds after your accident. You allow it to happen from the inside out according to its own uh, pace. You know, you, you do everything you can to promote your healing and to advance it, but it also has this, a kind of an appropriate pace to it. And so patience is important. But as I was saying earlier, grieving people can sometimes make grief harder by having dirt in the wound. You know, if you ever cared for a child or bandaged anybody, that got hurt on the playground or something like that, the first thing you want to do is wash it out. And then you want to put on some ointment and a Band-Aid. If, if your grief is uh, worse than you wished it were, or if you're getting any indication from people around you that it seems uh, excessive, check your work. Maybe there's something where there's dirt in the wound and could we cleanse the wound and maybe the grief would uh, be able to move at a, a at a faster pace and you'll be able to bring yourself through it to hopefully uh more on your life on the other side of it and one thing that i don't know how you land on this uh but i don't i don't say to people you'll never get over it um i just think that's self-defeating um i'm with you uh, with that um yes it's true you'll never have that person back in quite the way that you had them before their death but that doesn't mean that they're not available to you somehow. And I just don't think it's helpful. I don't think you can live joyfully at, while at the same time you're saying to yourself something like, you know, I'll never get over it. Right, right, right. Absolutely true. Um, tell, us the, tell us the best ways for people to connect with you, purchase your books, and if there's anything else you'd like to say to them. Yeah, my little dog friend is dancing around. Um, let's see. My website is Nathan-Castle.com. That's the best way to find me. Nathan-Castle.com. N-A-T-H-A-N-C-A-S-T-L-E.com. If you go on the site, it'll, it'll, it'll show you a bunch of different things. And in the upper left is one of those little envelope icons that creates an email. 
I ask that if people want to talk to me, that they read one of my books first, because I don't want to rehash material that's available to them. And I think our conversation would be more beneficial after they've, you know, informed themselves a little bit. So, um, and the books are available on Amazon. They're available in um, written form, paper book, an ebook for an e-reader. And they're, they're also on audible.com. And the Audible is really sweet. It's in my own voice and, and most of the time in the voices of the actual prayer partners that took part in the original session. So that brings it, uh, has a, a loveliness to it. And then in the upper right of the website, there's the icon for YouTube. My YouTube channel is my name, Father Nathan Castle. And if you permit it, this uh, podcast at some point will be archived there to make it available. I'd be honored to do that. And I'm always encouraging people to subscribe to this podcast through YouTube also. Sure. Because I have um, that, I absolutely, the, we're both in the healing business. I mean, however we can help people. It's right. And I'm, I'm an author, but I'm, I'm not doing, I have a vow of poverty. I'm not shilling to sell more books because I need a, another yacht or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to get a message out and, uh, but I'm happy to help people if I can. I just, I ask that they move through the website. I don't like Facebook messenger. Uh, and other ways that people might ask a question like on YouTube or LinkedIn or something else. I just don't have enough hours in the day to chase down all these things. If you really want me to reply to you, go on the website because I watch the email really carefully. That's great for people to know. And of all people in this universe, Father Nathan, what is your tip for finding joy in life? Um, Know that you are here because you're supremely loved by the God who brought you into being, however you imagine that. You are just a bundle of love, whoever you are. Even if you've been told your, your whole life that you're not, you are just a bundle of love. And, um, and you, you're here for a purpose, even if you don't know what it is. But there's something purposeful to be done near you. You don't need to Look, all your life for my my vast purpose, the next door neighbor could use a visit or a trip to the grocery store or something. There's always something that you can do in service to somebody else. And I do really believe that I believe in the cosmic happy ending. Whatever happens to anybody's life, I really do believe that there is a great roundup, whatever you want to call it. And I believe it's wonderful. There's the best is yet to come. I could not agree more. Thank you for that. Sure. Father Nathan, I just love this profound message from Ronnie. Tell them that it doesn't matter what religion you are or what you think about it, you will live after you die. Even if you die in a way that seems colossally tragic, you step out of that. You'll walk out of that like one might walk out of dirty clothes and go on. Your two wonderful Afterlife Interrupted books are great reads that illumine Ronnie's message in many ways. Thank you for helping stuck souls who died suddenly and traumatically to complete their passage, enabling them to be happy and free. And thank you also from my heart for all the ways you continue to help people heal on both sides of the veil. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on irieweinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and especially on YouTube. 
like, subscribe, and hit notify to make sure you'll get the inspiring new interviews coming your way. Thank you so much. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm -hmm.